certainly a cause of sickness uh, is the way we guard ourselves and the way we act in the world from this separated place. So that's why, again, going back to the beginning of this podcast, you do not need to be old to get any benefit from some of the incredible wisdom of the Tibetan culture. Hey everyone, Raghu, I'm back with David Silver. I don't even need to say his entire name because David is my podcast partner from many years, although now he does it l more infrequently, shall we say. David, welcome. Hi. <laughs> it's nice to be here. <laughs> so um, this is probably, what, another edition of Just Ask the Experts. They'll tell you everything you don't need to know because uh, they don't know anything. And they're, uh, but we, you know what we do know? We're completely dependent in, on our unknowing nature. It's good to get to an unknowing nature. So we, we do a little bit of investigation, but it's basically around our, our, our interests, which really do co coincide, um, David and I. And, uh, in this particular case, uh, I think the commonality is our appreciation for the philosophy and the perspective of Tibetan Buddhism, right? I, well, yeah, 100%. I mean, it's not the only thing, but when it is the thing, it's 100%. You know, in other words, if I go to anything Tibetan, I, I'm very satisfied by what the great teachers say. It's just so clear. And, yeah, uh, clear, uh, Vajra-like, crystal, yeah, penetrating, yeah. So, um, but you know what, Dave? I found something. I thought I'd... Uh, did you ever hear of someone named Glenn H. Mullen? He's a Tibetan no. expert. Yeah. No. He wrote a book called uh, Death and Dying in the Tibetan Tradition. But this is this is concisely, I think, why both of us really appreciate that tradition, this is from his, uh, his book. Tibet had become one of the very few ancient cultures of the world to come into the present age intact, unaffected by the colonial era and the destruction of the great wars that have plagued the materialistic societies of the last two centuries. It is possible that this very ancient sentiment, coupled with the lofty spirituality that was poised in the hearts of the Tibetan Buddhist mystics on the roof of the world may still today carry meaning to a planet at a crossroads of self-destruction and the dawning of a new renaissance. That seems concisely exactly what's been going on. You know, that yeah, yeah. what's happened. I mean, even His Holiness said... Uh, he said, if there's something in our tradition of, of benefit to mankind, it's our responsibility to preserve it in the face of any obstacle. Spiritual culture is a thing that transcends race, national borders, and even time. Worldly culture, no matter how quaint, has no lasting value, but spiritual culture does. Therefore, those aspects of Tibetan culture 
which were merely qualities of the time and place of old Tibet, need not be saved. That's pretty amazing. Mm. But if there are traditions that are truly beneficial to mankind now and in the future, we would be weak, foolish, and irresponsible to let them become lost or destroyed. I believe our ideas and methods for knowing the nature of the mind and a cultivating the spirit and cultivating the spirit belong to the category of what is useful to mankind it does not belong to the tibetans we are merely its merely its safekeepers therefore i and my people are making every effort to see that these faces of our culture are not lost with the loss of Tibet as a nation. They must endure for our children and our children's children and those in the community of mankind who are, un- who are able to benefit from them. I think this really says, I mean, you know, David and I have done a lot of podcasts and, uh, and, and in our lives have spent a lot of time um, really connecting with so many different lamas and so much of the material uh, that uh, this, this really succinctly says what we believe to be a reality and how beneficial uh, in, in a very, in a, not without tremendous suffering that still goes on, these, this tradition has been so beneficial to us, no? Yeah, I mean, what you said before about it being a, the roof of the world. I've heard that expression. You know, I, yeah. I think everyone has. But when you said it, it just occurred to me that I'd never really uh, put two and two together there, that there was a um, a culture that was pretty much un- unaffected. You know, I'm reading Lost Horizon right now. Uh, I thought there was a bo- movie. Well, it was actually a book by James Hilton. Oh, right, right. And, and then they and made that movie. The movie was a, a very, very good movie. But the book is, is as usual, um, more detailed. But one of the things that I noticed when I was reading it was that it's really about Westerners suddenly encountering Tibet. And, um, and Shangri-La and the Lamas are, are very hip to what, they, what these Westerners can and can't sort of accept. But they, one of which is, why are we here? We don't want to be here. We crash-landed in a plane in the middle of Tibet, near the mm-hmm. Karoli Mountains, and, and just, you know, it was just a nightmare. And then they met these, uh, a chief lama being carried, as they are sometimes, in a canopied um, thing, and, and they picked them up and took Dundee. them to the lamasery. Yeah, right. So they took them to the lamasery, and, and there they were hostile for a while, except one man who seemed to be more aligned. But what came out of it was that they began to understand that their culture which was that of the Western colonials, because they were colonial diplomats or officials of of the British and mm. one American, and that they had no idea that the, what the the richness of this culture. In fact, they thought they were a bunch of barbarians, which is still most unfortunately the way most Westerners look at not just Tibet but African countries and and. Uh, you know, countries from all over the world that aren't America or Britain or France or Germany or Italy or whatever. And the idea that other cultures would have redeeming or redemptive uh, cultures and methods of healing is still rather alien to the West. And, you know, you asked me to read this book, uh, Raga, which I enjoyed reading. So it's called Intra 
to Ben. Oh, yeah, Intrick. By Dan Siegel. Yeah. And it's it's a very um sort of heartfelt book, even though he's he's kind of a scientist, mm -hmm. uh medical. But uh one of the things he says is that power and profit, P and P calls it, have completely eradicated in the West uh the idea of the law of one and non dualistic perceptions and emotions about the world around you. And he goes into great detail about this. And some of it is really fascinating because he says that um, human evolution is so much slower than cultural evolution that it is possible to both take on bad stuff and to redeem it and to change it. Mm. And therefore, yeah. those of us nowadays who are saying, oh my God, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's gone too far. The oceans are too warm. They didn't take any notice of it. There are horrible things going on all over the world, earthquakes and all this. What, what he's saying in the book is, yes, that is true. But if we were all able to understand what the Tibetans and indigenous shamans around the world, uh, you know, he has this word called consilience. Yeah, it, I, you know, I've never heard that word. Yeah, no. Nor me. It's actually a medical, it's a medical scientific term. But it, it's very narrow. It means when two scientific methods come together rather than science and spirit. But in his case, because he's an enlightened and brilliant man, he says, no, the consilience is really between um, non-dualistic, um, or a non-dualistic way of looking at the world and a dualistic way of looking at the world, and that we are fighting a battle with those members of the race or the species that believe that um, they talk about being, you know, Christians and Jews and Muslims and all of that, but they're incredibly, the whole society, the whole system is very materialistic and is based on individual endeavor and it's encouraged. Another thing he says is that unlike in Tibet or in, in, in devotional regions of the world, uh, we are taught to be individually successful. Mm. And that sounds like well, American exceptionalism. You know, what's wrong with that? We make better chips. Biden says we're going to make chips in this country. It's in China, why we invented it, we should make them here. He's talking about a way of life which says that if you are not individually, separately successful, that you're not successful. You know, in other words, binding yourself with the rest of the world. You know, I mean, it's just so obvious when you think about it. Unfortunately, um, what he does say is that it is sort of a battle that, you know, we have to individually find that. And then there's some chance that that will spread, you know. And, and you know, that makes sense because, as he says, neurological change is plastic. We can change the way our brains think and therefore we can change the way we uh, manifest that by speaking or acting in a way which is... Uh, for the community of man and woman and, and animal and plant and insect. And, 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 you know, literally everything. So if all is one, you can't really separate it out so as you can fight with it. There is no other. And that's what I think the Tibetans have been teaching us. There is, and what's so great about His Holiness is, you know, like I have this thing, you know, I think it's called the Book of Happiness or something, and it's a daily diary, you know. So on any day, it's a piece of his writing. Uh, and today, you know, I read it every morning if I can. I miss a day or two sometimes. But, you know, this morning, the piece for April 2nd, any April 2nd in any year for this book, he says, don't get the stupid idea 
the people who are successful are happy and the people who are unsuccessful are unhappy. Dalai Lama says, people who are hugely successful are usually unhappy. Mm. Why? Because striving for more and more and more success leaves you with no room, no space to just think of your fellow man and to be um, observant of a gentle and embracing non-dual approach to life. And so the Tibetan masters that we've come across, Raga, have been instrumental in, in kind of changing our, um, just our everyday way of looking at things, you know. I mean, yesterday I was getting, the cable guy came and he was four hours late. <laughs> four friggin' hours late. And we had to call the company and then they had to call him in his van and he was lost and whatever. And it's like Ram Dass talking about you don't know yourself until you're in the grocery line behind someone who's annoying you. Uh, we just were sitting here going crazy. Like we want to do other things besides wait for the cable guy. But eventually he called me. He was a Russian. And he said, oh, I'm very sorry. I, I, I got in the wrong place driving and uh, I'm going to be late. He was already very late. And, you know, I think at a certain point in my life, I probably would have said, what the, I mean, this is your job. Come here. I didn't. I said, no problem. This was after four hours of cursing, by the way. Cursing. And, 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 but fortunately, I just cursed to my partner, not to the world. You know, This business of blame and hatred and separation and division is all bound up in a way of a way of looking at life which has um, been heavily conditioned by materialism and competition and the glorification of the individual and the non-even observance of the idea that the, the entire thing is our property and it lives within us. So why are we ignoring it? And, and to the exclusion of any kind of enlightenment or semi-enlightenment or anything, we're more interested in, you know, whether someone's going to get punished for a crime or whether stocks are going down or whether our IRA is going away. I mean, I understand this. It's, it makes sense that we should be worried about the world we live in, but it's strangling us. Yeah. What, you know, when you talk about uh, this book that we both, uh, you know, and I did a podcast on Mind Rolling with uh, Dan Siegel, Dr. Dan, and, you know, it's of high interest for all of us, the idea that we live in this separate bubble and we are really identified with it to the um, detriment of our own potential for progressing into a being that is going to be a little bit more kind, a little bit more compassionate, as His Holiness says, uh, kindness is my only religion, a uh, little bit uh, less judgmental, and so on. And we, are, everyone has that goodness in them, and allowing it to be it gets really um, problematic when you're confronted by this severe attachment that we have to our individual bubble, to the me. And I, you know, I pose this. We, we, I think you have some quotes that you picked up that you sent me, uh, actually, David. Uh, yeah. Things that you know were interest around the um, around death and dying, around 
consciousness, uh, and I think around, particularly around the process of death. And by the way, everybody out there's listening to this who's you know under fifty or whatever, going, "What do I? Well, fifty maybe not, forty maybe. Yeah. You know, why do I listen to this bullshit? I mean, I'm not. You know, this is not in my." path right now i'll worry about that later which is another natural human thing to do yes um except the reality is that that thing that we're talking about that we all are going to face is happening on a moment-to-moment basis the liminal states that we move Mm. you know we don't know what's happening and we're moving into a state from one state to another and you know we're getting lost we're getting chaotic where which leads us to hold on even tighter and causes uh, further problems and so the essence of of it is uh no different from somebody who has you know a uh, a terminal disease or a long-term disease that is affecting every notion of what you think you are mm-hmm. you know it, it affects all the, the role that you think of, the identities that have been built up for all these years. So tackling that at any stage of the game, I don't care if you're 20, uh, having that in mind through, uh, well, first, obviously, we're all, you have to realize that there is a path to transform oneself. And once you set yourself on that path, because you were just so damn unhappy before, which is my case, um at most people's cases, uh, some people like Dan in this book, he 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 fell off a horse and his mm-hmm. and his foot hung in the stirrup, and he was bumped along for a hundred yards. I mean that he survived it is a miracle, but that changed his life. He yeah. he got for it's funny you know, and he recalls it. He went into a deep state of unity, and there was no I, and. He, as it happened, you know, it, it lasted for a day, but it changed his life. You know, just absolutely uh, amazing. And uh, so the potential is there for all of us, and it, does, it, it usually does come through suffering that we start to wake up and we start to look at our selfish behavior, our motivations, which, you know, the beauty of mindfulness holds for us in that respect. Uh, so... I know well, you. Could, I, I just wanted to make yeah, a point about something you said. You know that if you're under a certain age, probably this is going to be. You know, well, why should I care about this, right? Well, you should because, and this is from the CMAJJMEC, which is the Canadian Medical Association Journal, which is respected. And it, of course, it's is, Canadian. That's right. Um, it, and there are four or five doctors who are involved in this, but they say. It is important to examine people's trajectories throughout the course of life to identify predictors and possible areas for intervention in the dying process. And what they're saying is that the way that the medical profession now, apart from those that are visionary or incredibly advanced, um, does not really do that. I mean, it doesn't help people through their life, you know? Whereas in cultures where there were people, uh, young people, old people, Married people, non-married people, together as communities, and they could see each other's progress, progressions. So the young ones could see the death of a, gra- a grandfather mm, or a great-grandfather. Yeah. All of these trajectories are not ours anymore. 
So we don't actually look at someone who's dying unless we can help it. I mean, it's just, you know, we go to the hospice and say, oh, I'm so sorry. And then if you look at Facebook or anything, every time someone dies, it's like, oh, that's so awful. That's terrible. That is a manifestation of a distorted way of looking at the flow of life and death, as it were. I mean, it just is. So what they're saying here, these doctors, is from omitting death and dying from positive models of aging, the opportunity to make the processes of dying as successful as possible is missed. Making the best of dying does not necessarily mean staving off death at all costs, but finding the means through which positive mental and physical states can be fostered. For older adults, decisions made in the absence of acknowledging trajectories of death and dying can be misguided, yeah, actually misguided and unrealistic. So basically, this word deathlessness became a word in my life um, a few years ago, Mm. and um, it wasn't there before. And it's it's inherent in many mantras, uh, both from the Tibetan tradition and the Bhakti tradition. And, you know, I'll just give you an example because I made a couple of notes on this. Um, in in the... Um, some of them are very long, so let's just try a shorter one. Pardon this, I don't have them in order. This is Chagyal Rinpoche, who is not someone that I uh, know anything about, but I know he's respected Lama. He says, he's talking about Yamantaka. Hmm. God of death. Yes. And he says it means one by whom, by nature, subdues Yama, the god of death. Yama, the god of death, represents time, conceptualized mind, especially the state of mind where there are concepts of time and space of the five elements, all concepts of vastness, infiniteness, great space, and all states where mind clings to these concepts. Taka is fully awakened, enlightened awareness, the antidote for Yama. And, I mean, that's a heavy statement because he's saying, or it's a light statement, really. He's saying, even if you think that you got it by saying, oh, it's vast, death is vast, the universe is vast, the metaverse is vast, the multiverse is vast, and I'm going into it. He's going, no, 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 <laughs> no, that's not going to work for you because you have no idea what that means. And even if you did have any idea, that isn't what he's talking about. The Yamantaka is the defeat of conceptual, objectified, dualistic clinging to this life, which is not surprising, but unless you actually do some practice of some kind, it's by the time you die, you just are not prepared for it. I mean, it's that simple. It's that cruel. And, I mean, I've come across this so many times. Um, a friend of mine died about seven years ago who had no spiritual disciplines whatsoever and didn't want any. Mm. Uh, but when he got, uh, when he was dying, he actually called me and said, I need something. And I said, well, listen to the Gyoto monks. Mm. He didn't know anything about that. So I gave them to him and he listened to them for a few days. And, uh, and then I gave him a little Buddha. And I think I gave him a little statue. And when he was in the hospice, he had the statue there and he was listening to that music, to those chants, um, for about a few weeks before he, he went. And the last time I saw him, he was quite peaceful. Now, this is not supposed to be a, self, a self-congratulatory statement. I, I, I felt really bad for him. I don't know. I felt like he needed something that he, wa- he knew he wanted. In other words, if you not, don't know you want it, there's no point in trying it. You know, it's, it's not going to work. Mm. People are going to go, oh, yeah, that's nice, thanks. I did that once in 68. 
I, I heard that from someone recently. You know, oh, meditation, yeah, I tried that. Yeah, I did TM. And I'm like, oh, so how long did you do it for? Well, a long time, eight months or something. Uh-huh. And how long ago was that? Oh, 46 years ago. Uh-huh. <laughs> it just doesn't work like that. It's like anything else. If you want to play an instrument, you have to learn how to play it. If you want to be in an orchestra, you have to learn how to be in an orchestra. It, it requires rehearsal and, and someone helping you with that trajectory of, mm. of knowledge, of self-awareness, so that when you, come to the, when you come to the point where death can be defeated by deathlessness, what does that mean? What does it really mean, that? And again, the Tibetans are saying it's just a flow that has no, there's no barrier between one and the next. I mean, I asked Ramdas once, I actually asked him, I said, the moment of death, what is that? And he said, the moment. And he, that was a period at the end of that word. He didn't go on about it. He said, it's a moment. It's like a moment like any other moment, and nothing dies. It just changes. Mm. Mm. Leary said to me, uh, when I asked him, Timothy Leary, God, my name dropping here, those two guys. You know, he was dying. He had a couple of weeks left. And um, off camera, because I was filming him, for some reason I didn't film this, I asked him, are you, um, are you worried about dying? And he had advanced cancer and he was going to die soon. It was obvious. I used to carry him to the bathroom. He was so light. He weighed like 80 pounds or something. Mm. It was unbelievable. It was like a skeleton. And he said, no, David, no, it's an adventure. I don't know anything about what it's going to be, but what a thought that, that I'm going to go into an adventure, into the mystery. Mm. It's an adventure. I can't wait. And you know, he was sincere. He, that wasn't some kind of bravura or bravado, whatever the word is. He wanted to go there because he knew that that was going to be a change that he needed and wanted at this moment, that his incarnational journey was at this point, and mm. he was you happy know, about it. Yeah. I don't know whether that, any of that Courage, means anything. But, courage, yeah. cur in French, definitely. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, uh, so uh, I was thinking, of, there's a couple of people that I really respect, so do you, Um both of them that I knew. I'm not sure you knew Stephen Levine, but... Uh, no, I didn't. You know, I know who he is. Uh, yeah. yeah and the other is Roshi Joan Halifax, both of who have been uh, very instrumental in giving a perspective on this whole process. And again, not just for the, you know, the last year or two years of one's life. We're talking about a whole lifetime. This per- this perspective is so important incredibly valuable um so talking about deathlessness here's something from stephen to open to our original nature to the truth of being we must stop postponing death to take death which allows us to go beyond death beyond what we imagine dies to come to that vastness of being that a being that many speak of as the deathless vastness of being using death as a way of confronting ourselves with the places we hide, the places we, we disallow the heart. That's beautiful, too. We are each in a process of awakening, becoming mm. fully born so that we may, we may die each moment past our fear and isolation. 
The illusion of separateness dies to reveal the deathlessness of our essential nature. That's well mm. said. He was a great poet, too, by the way, Stephen. Yeah, I, that's a, I mean, I've never heard it put like that. But I mean, yeah, that's fantastic. I, I should read more of him. You know, his wife also is, is very amazing. Andre, uh, yeah. I, Andre has... This is from both this book, by the way, we'll have this in the show notes, because uh, these couple of books are, are, you know, we're talking about the Tibetan Buddhist perspective, and of course the uh, the books and the scriptures that they have to uh, allow us to understand about going into bardos, the best in my mind being the uh, Sogyal Rinpoche's The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, which essentially comes from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Of the Dead. But Stephen and Andrea wrote a book, Who Dies?, that is, mm. again, mm. we'll connect you up with that book. And uh, Roshi wrote a book, Joan Halifax, Being with Dying, which is really good to uh, get people aware of the processes that are something that comes to everybody at one point in their life or, or another. And I don't mean, of course, yes, we are all going to face our own moving into that bardo, into the mystery, but at the same time, we are going to be with people who need us. Like, you know, you just talked about, David, and that phone call, just one person, you know. And we've all had moments with, of course, family members and friends. And uh, so, yeah, there's some great things in both of these books, which we'll have up there. The, the other, yeah, everything you said so so true. The, the, this thing I, I sent you from Dhammapada 21 uh, takes a slightly different tack because he says, or it says in there, mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful do not die, but the heedless are as if dead already. And that's a harsh statement because basically it says that if you're not mindful through the flow of your earthly life in the incarnation you're currently aware of, uh, in other words, in his word, heedless, that that will, be, that will bring death and its fury. Whereas a mindful approach to the totality, not just you, but the totality, and a conscious you know, sort of rehearsing that all the time of going back to it from separation, uh, which happens all the time. I mean, all the time. Mm. We have 50,000 thoughts, what, uh, a day? Something like that, some ridiculous number. And no matter what we do, those thoughts come flowing through. And, you know, a lot of those thoughts are very negative. Are like, oh, God, I'm, I'm ill. Oh, God, I'm going to die. Oh, my, my friend's going to mm. die. Oh, my God, my leg's going to get chopped off. Now, if you're in a war and somebody shoots you and you've got like approximately 30 seconds to appreciate what's happening and then you die with a hole in your heart, what happens then? That fascinates me because that's still someone's karma. Someone's karma was to be in one of those trenches. If you've seen All Quiet on the, Quiet on the Western Front, won a, a lot of Oscars this year, rightly so. It's really? a horrifying, I haven't stu seen it. it's a stupefying movie. It's really? horrible. It's, it's just, mm, I've never imagine. seen anything so graphic ever, and I could hardly watch it. 
but what it, I mean, originally what, what it was about really was this is the only way we can tell you how terrible this thing is, Cold War, that you admire so much with your, mm. your military parades and your uniforms and your medals and your nonsense. And so that's heedless because it's totally heedless. It's societally heedless because it kills people before they have a chance. I mean, people are fighting wars are between the age of 18 and 23 usually. They're not our age. We're gone. They don't want us. We can't run fast enough. So war is about young people getting mutilated, murdered, massacred. And so in the Dhammapada thing, he's saying that war, he's not saying this, but I'm saying is that war is heedless. Division is heedless. Overwhelming individuated capitalism is heedless. Diabolical ideological communism and fascism is heedless. And they're all upon us right now. They are. Whether you like it or not, they are. I've been a student of politics and geopolitics for at least 50 years, and I've never, ever seen anything like this. So what do we do? And Dan Siegel is very good about this too in the book, Intricate. We should just talk about that in a minute. You know, these are two sides of the same coin, deathlessness and intraconnection. He, he makes this statement that there are three things. I want to get this right because I know you had him on the show, but he's not on this show, so he can't correct me. Um, <laughs> but I want to just say what he said. Mm. He said, me is inner, inner. We is inter. Mui is intra. I love that. So, so he made up this word, mui, which yeah. is almost impossible to say, but it's also mui. almost impossible to do, you know. Um, <laughs> So interconnection is not enough for, 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 for Dr. Siegel because what he's saying is that, well, that suggests a separation. You know, that we're interconnected means we have mutual objectives and we have mutual likes and dislikes and we can be interconnected. He's saying, no, no, that's not what I'm doing. Right? I'm talking about intraconnection, which is deeper and inner. And so that's the side of the coin that says the trajectory, getting back to that word, the trajectory of how you live will determine how you approach deathlessness. And whether you actually reach for that. Because, I mean, basically, all these Tibetan masters are very, I mean, His Holiness is very pragmatic in his speaking. Now, I happened to hear yesterday His Holiness with a, a bunch of monks somewhere singing. Uh, I'd never heard him chant like this. And it was beyond the beyond the beyond. Hmm. You could hear them in the background doing the call and response. But his voice was so incredibly potent. I've never heard anything like it. It was like a, a constant explosion of the deepest kind of expression of a human being. That, could, and that was his holiness. And yet, when he talks to us here, or anybody actually, I think anywhere, he's very, he's very down to earth, you know. Totally. He says, you know, if you can't swap romantic compassion for deep universal compassion, you're going to have a hard time, whether you think it or not. Because one is not permanent. Nothing is permanent. So if you're going to base your life on impermanence, you have to come up with some way of dealing with that. You have to. Otherwise, it'll drive you crazy. You know, you just go, nothing is, is here. We're all just ghosts. And what, the machine. And, yeah, well, right. Remember that? Yes. That's so cool. The ghost in the machine is, 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 is this thing in our head that tells us we are the skin-encased body that is unfortunately, most unfortunately, going to fall to pieces at a certain point in our life. And, you know, just go to pieces. And Pema Chodron's been good on that one, you know, which is, yeah. 
when everything goes off, what do you do then? You know, I mean, I just recently had an experience where my dear pet, cat, who's named after Padmas and Baba, um, got said, well, she fell and, and tore her ACL in her back left leg and was crying for days until we were able to sedate her and then treat her. And in that moment, in those moments when that was happening, I was in an extreme state of anxiety. I didn't sleep for two nights because she was crying all night and I had to deal with it. There's nothing worse than an animal being sick mm. because they can't tell you anything and it makes yeah. you crazy, you know. So, I, you know, I had to absolutely envelop this animal with my love and my knowledge of what it is and the whole damn thing. I had to forget everything and just do that for a little 10-year-old calico cat. And I felt all kinds of emotions that were not as good as this podcast. In other words, they weren't all, well, it's okay if she dies. I was ab absolutely freaked out that she couldn't walk anymore. She was doing odd things. She was walking backwards. Walking backwards. To see an animal walk backwards is like something from a horror film. And she did that until I picked her up and put her on the bed and said, don't do that. And it's, it, it's just been part of my life for the past few years. It's been three weeks now of this. And um, it's taught me a lot of lessons. That to divide yourself, even from an animal, is, is wrong. It just, it, that's what's causing all the trouble, isn't it? I mean, let's get down to it. What is causing all the trouble? You know, Trump is going to get indicted tomorrow. A lot of people are very happy about that. A lot of people are not very happy about that. So it's not like that indictment of that criminal, he is a criminal, and I don't care what anybody thinks about that, he's a criminal. It doesn't help to hate him. It doesn't help. It just doesn't help. It's the immediate emotion that you want to have about someone who's doing other people, making other people suffer. Hitler, Mussolini, Pol Pot, you know, Idi Amin. These are people we tend not to think about, but they're the actual quintessence of division. They, they live to divide and conquer. That's the expression, and that's where it comes from. You divide and conquer, and that's what's going on. They're so how in, do you find... You know, yeah, they're in that me-separated bubble. Exactly. There is no whatsoever, there's absolutely no recompense around the fact that we are connected. There is just no awareness, nothing. And because they're in that bubble, which... Uh, is enhanced by power and wealth and fostering division. Um, it's it's very you know it's unfortunate. It's it's why Ramdas used to have a picture of of in this you know many different political figures who were lost in this separateness and um, you know didn't have any kind of. Uh, kindness he would say poor lousy incarnation but i'm going to relate to that which is behind all of that ramdas called it soul you know the, the buddhists would call it buddha mind and he didn't want to spend his time hating as you just said as many of us do when we see these kinds of injustices I want to just turn for a second, Dave, um, back to uh, these couple of people that I really love. Uh, 
Stephen and Andrea and uh, Roshi, who really have something to say about how to, you know, w of course, they also point to the separation as the fundamental issue, as Dan does in his book, Dan Siegel, as a fundamental issue which creates the kind of polarization is the belief in this separate entity that we feel we are through our... It starts with getting a name. It continues with all of the, the, the ways in which we continually are forced to identify ourselves, which is why indigenous people and their wisdom is so important now because they have rituals that address this all the way through a young person's life. And that is, it's just, uh, it's just lost for us. We really don't have that, you know. We have a bar mitzvah, we have a com communion or whatever. We have these things that are mm -hmm. not, um, they are not substantial to us at all. We, we've lost a connection to them where it's, it has real meaning. Uh, one thing that um, I, uh, I love, I don't know if you've ever heard Roshi's um, uh, aphorism around strong back, soft front. She says, all too often, our so-called strength comes from fear, not love. And this is what we're talking about with people, uh, aforementioned people that are living in this separate universe. There's, the strength comes from fear, obviously not love. If there was love, they would be caring about other people. Instead of having a strong back, many of us have a defended front shielding a weak spine. Have you ever heard it? She talks about this all the time. No, In other words, we walk around brittle and defensive, trying to conceal our lack of confidence. And, then, you know, when you read something like that and you identify it in a person, in this case like Trump, mm. you, you may start to have a little bit of compassion because you, you can see that is what's mm. going on, mm. you know. If we strengthen our backs, metaphorically speaking, and develop a spine that's flexible but sturdy, then we can risk having a front that's soft and open, representing choiceless compassion. Mm. The place in your body where these two meet, strong back and soft front, is the brave, tender ground in which to root our caring deeply when we begin the process of being with dying. Mm. How well said is that? I mean, it's perfect. Talk about. Uh, mm appropriate advice or even a perspective and view mm. from her in, in, in relation to how we guard ourselves, right? And with tremendous defense mechanisms and, and our body reacts like that as well, which is why, you know, certainly a cause of sickness uh, is the way we guard ourselves and the way we act in the world from this separated place. So that's why, again, going back to the beginning of this podcast, you do not need to be old to get any benefit from some of the incredible wisdom of the Tibetan culture and the wisdom of, of others who have followed in those footsteps and taken teachings and translated them, like Roshi Halifax in particular. Um, 
and uh, the the vast um, usefulness at any age of starting to understand how that separate bubble affects so much all you know of course right around us and it affects so much you see it in the world with uh, what's going on uh, in our country and in other countries and the, the wars that are how they're shaping this separateness and and uh, you know it's undermining the the reality of of uh, what Dan is talking about in terms of interconnection interconnection right and um, and and the, the, you know there's one thing in that book that he said that I I really loved which was it's not like you give up being a separate right. person with an identity and work to do, taking care of family, paying the bills, all of it. You don't give that up. You are behind that, understanding its function. I mean, Ramdas put uh, put it, well, he didn't say this, but whatever, the, it's, it's a metaphor that comes from some teaching in the past. The ego is a great servant, but a terrible master. And that's really what, Dan is alluding to when he talks about mm. you don't give this up, and you know as mm. if uh, you're. It's like that whole crazy mm. bullshit idea of of what surrender. We have no idea what mm. surrender is. It's not surrendering your thing and your money and your being to another something. It's nothing to do with that. It's surrendering that um, phony I, that mm. separation bubble. And, uh, and surrendering it means realizing that we are in it and how that is causing so much of, of uh, the, the issues that we have in this world today, not to mention the reality of, in terms of internally, not being able to make friends with moving along in this life, which includes getting sick and dying. Mm. Mm. She says, death is inescapable. All beings, you and me, are heading straight into its mouth. Yes. <laughs> what kind of optimism can be born from such a raw truth? And Jonas Salk, right, the famous guy who invented, what did he, you know, some uh, the, he, uh, polio. 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 Cure yeah. polio, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He said, learn to cooperate with the inevitable. <laughs> How about that for a good thing? Simple, but not easy. Um, can um, you know? Can what did she say? Can we hold such moments without a sense of tragedy, frustration, or fear? I, for one, don't find it easy. I have a basic intolerance of suffering, but I give it my close attention while holding myself as open as possible. I mean, what more simple way to say that truth? Mm-hmm. You know. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at this quote I sent you by Rumi. Which, uh-huh. He says... We love Rumi. Which, which fits that. He says, Goodbyes are only for those who love with their eyes. Because for those who love with their heart and soul, there is no such thing as separation. And we know that. Because when that happens, you know, when you know, we're so used to the external. And it's not, it's not evil... It's just natural that we're in this body, 
We look at other bodies. We make judgments. People do things. They don't do things. Whatever. We make judgments. Mm. But it's only after teaching from those that have gone way beyond that that can say to us, no, that's not going to work. To to judge and to hate and to fight constantly and to be angry is clearly not going to help. You know, it, it just never does. So, you know, we need teachers. And I think even though the world is messed, um, it pretty much has been for a, a long time, shall we say, before prehistory when all kinds of things happened that we have no idea about because they don't teach about, you know, they don't teach us about ancient civilizations where, you know, Rama and Sita were real people or where, you know, th- we, we're not taught that. We're taught about wars and governments and nation states and all this separation to make us happy. I mean, when Prince Harry did that interview with them, um, oh, yeah. or, or did, the, did the documentary, yeah. he said something that I actually myself had experienced, and I, I give him great plaudits for this. He said, I looked at a map, and it was all red, and it was the British Empire. And I realized, oh, my God, that's what, that's what we are. We're those people that ruled those people <laughs> and enslaved them. <laughs> and that's why he was ostracized, by the way, as part of his, uh, his teaching, is that racism is evil. If anything is evil, it's racism, racism and bigotry, okay? But what's so great is that people, and I, I know people will probably who listen to this thing, why the hell is he quoting Prince Harry? Because he's a yeah. human being, and he's got certain experiences which maybe you and I have not had. And one of them is being part of that system you talked about, Raga, the, the power and profit and colonialism and control. And yet, and you know this because I know you know it, there is a counterbalance going on in the world which is extraordinary because we know about it because of the internet and because of communications and technology of basically people, young people who are fed up with this. Just as we were fed up in the 60s with war and, and just nonsense. And so civil rights came about and the anti-war movement happened and it changed the world. Well, what's changing the world now are, are the Greta Thunbergs, Thornbergs and so forth. Mm. I saw a strange thing, an interview with her, and one of the interviewers said to her, is it true that you were um, silent as a child? And I thought she'd go, no, that's just a silly rumor. And she said, no, that's absolutely true. Did you talk to your siblings? No. Why not? Because they were all talking about nonsense. It was all small talk. I couldn't get involved. I don't like that. The world is burning. And she knew that when she was a kid. Hmm. So Greta now is, what, in her 20s, I suppose? And now she's vegan and she does not fly anywhere. And for someone as world-renowned as her, and as important as her, she's more important than any politician because she's actually telling us the truth. And she doesn't fly anymore because she found data that said that frequent flying all over the world, 50,000 flights a day in America, whatever it is, is just one of the worst polluters. So she's a woman of her word and of her soul. And that's the counterbalance which is so encouraging. You know, that we're seeing all this horror show going on in Ukraine and so on. It's just awful. We know it is. But it's just a cycle. And while that cycle is going on, I think there are people waking up just as much. And in my estimation, more so now than ever, even though it's not as obvious. People are not, you know, wearing bell bottoms and long hair to tell people that they're different. They're not hippies anymore. But there are people who know this stuff and are practicing it. In other words, compassion, deep compassion, 
and the 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 um the sort of leaving behind of the solo self as Dan Siegel calls it good words solo self the ego that is if it's your master it kills you if it's your servant it helps you and i i think a lot of people are there now because otherwise you wouldn't be we wouldn't be doing this you and i would not be doing this we don't want to waste our time what's left you know, it's like, why are we doing this? Well, we're doing it because it, there's, a, there's an aura about it. There's, an, a, there's, a, there's a channeling that's going on with people who just want to be kind, as hmm. His Holiness says. They want to just make that and expand it out and be kind to yourself. And being kind to yourself means not ignoring suffering in yourself and in others. It just yeah. means, you know... You know what it means? It means good cheer. I like that. Those two expressions. Good <laughs> cheer, because you know the soldiers in World War One in in the trenches had to be humorous, so they went crazy, and and they just had to be. They joked around with each other because they knew that their death was imminent, mm. and it was horrible, and yet they found the resources somehow to do that, to to joke around and and to, I mean, just to overcome it by whatever way they could. Now we're not in that situation here in America or in, in Ukraine. It's just a war, another war. But we can't let that destroy our um, purpose, which is, you know, which is about... What is it about? It's, it's about kindness and it's about not... It's about kindness, that's period. Because within that is everything. If you're kind, it means you're appreciating and, and, and being able to bring into your own consciousness the, that of others, other cultures, other ways, other people, some people who you don't like, but maybe they got a point sometimes. And it sounds so preachy, so I'm going to stop mm. this. I'm stopping <laughs> this. The world sucks. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but but there, is, there are signs. There are signs that more people than ever are chanting, more people are doing yoga, more people are doing Tai Chi, more people are using acupuncture instead of drugs. I mean, it is happening. It's been happening for well, 50 years. Or uh, let's even forget all the spiritual blah, blah. How about, I just saw something today. I saw a man who uh, was um, a specialist in rehabbing people from mm. physical injuries, but not just physical injuries, but also people... Um, dementia etc etc and using it through physical action and he went and he devoted uh i'm not sure all his time it maybe it wasn't all his time but a significant amount of his time and it showed you in the video how he was working with disabled children working with uh, older people who were in all sorts of you know compromised conditions and he just gave he totally was you just see the giving that he was doing it was just never mind the reality when you talk about it and and everyone goes well that's fantastic when you actually see him the mm -hmm. way that he gave from his core of of goodness was it was astounding. So you're right. There are people who are just doing it. They're not thinking about it. They're not thinking about the philosophy that, well, I'm going to get myself out of this separate bubble because uh, you know I'm hurting myself and I'm hurting everybody else. They're just coming from a place of uh, knee-jerk reaction to doing it. There is a lot more of that, and they're not, you know, they're not necessarily on any particular path or spiritual path or religious path or anything. 
So uh, I, I would say that, yeah, it's, it's extraordinary promising. I have, uh, before we go, though, there was one other thing that I got. Who's this from? Stephen Levine. That really helps to address, and it, it, it covers both. It does address the separateness that we've been talking about and our lost, how lost we are in it. And we don't have to be somebody who's in a, uh, a power position, you know, can be at a company, at a government, whatever. It doesn't have to be that for this to speak to us because we're talking about we do this within ourselves. We do, do this to ourselves. Just think of how you talk to yourself sometimes. So the, there's a lot of judging going on. There's a lot of discomfort with ourselves because of this uh, complete identi- identity with being separate. I mean, it's um, as soon as the mind's conditioning to be someone arises, right? That's the first thing. You get a name, you're going to be someone. A kind of pain comes into our heart. A feeling of being alone. I did this thing, you know, I, I think I've told you, I, I, Duncan Trussell and I have been working on this movie of me, Krishnas, this whole thing about that we wake up in the morning and we're the producer, the director, the writer, we write our own reviews and <laughs> do the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so we've been working on it and, and in the work that, you know, just doing this that you and I are doing, um, we started identifying the pain of growing up into this separation entity bubble. And, and you know, Stephen, a feeling of being alone was so prevalent as we, um, you know, revealed to ourselves and each other the kinds of things that, that really fed this, this separation, this feeling of being alone. It was really miserable. It is the loneliness of our separateness our alienation from the universal. But when we sit quietly with that loneliness and let it float in the mind, it dissolves into a quote-unquote aloneness, which is not lonely. This is a big teaching, or, you know, teaching. That's too pompous. This is great information, Okay, aloneness, it's an aloneness which is not lonely when you can sit quietly with this feeling of separation and alienation, but is rather a recognition that we are each alone in the one. It is the great silence of the universe, quote-unquote, alone in space. It has a wholeness about it, but to change the intense loneliness of our personal isolation into a quote-unquote aloneness with God, we must gently let go of control and stop recreating the imagined self. We must surrender our specialness, our competition, our comparing minds. Control is our attempt to make the world align with our personal desires. Right? Rings all the bells there? To let go of control is to go beyond the personal and merge with the universal. Control creates bondage. Control is the defender of the clinging mind. It opposes the openness of the heart. If our boats are empty, though there is still a vessel carried by the prevailing winds and currents, there is not, quote-unquote, someone in it to be misunderstood. 
There is no one to oppose. There is simply empty space, boat, water, wind. Everything is in perfect harmony. Nothing is pulling against the natural flow. No one in the boat. No one to suffer. The analogy, by the way, that he talked about is that famous story is you're, you're in a boat and it's foggy and you see another boat and through the fog and everything you imagine there's a person, maybe a malvolent kind of a person that's coming at you and you know you create all this imagination when there's nothing. Mm. Mm. Absolutely, it's just projection. You know. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, yes. this, there's some really beautiful, this thing around uh, converting and, and transforming loneliness and separation into aloneness with God is just fantastic, I think. Yeah, oh, it's, yes. I mean, I, you know, I mentioned to you the other day that I finally caught up with this um, Octopus, My Teacher film on, on Netflix. And I'd sort of resisted it for some reason, mainly because everybody liked it. I'm such a contrary sort of person. <laughs> and um, I thought, well, you know, okay. I watched it, and I was overwhelmed by it. I literally was overwhelmed by it because at the end of the film, and I don't care if this spoils the film for you because this is the truth of the film. It's not a, it's not a thriller, you know. It's not a whodunit. The man who is diving uh, on the South Cape of Africa uh, has done that his whole life and then he became neurotic and unhappy and basically was suicidal really and then he started diving again and he comes into contact with the octopus I won't tell you the whole story but one thing at the end is this octopuses, I didn't know this, live very short lives a year a year, I thought that was just for like butterflies and flies and things but an octopus which is an extraordinarily advanced creature only lives yeah. a year yeah and there's a moment at the end of the film when the octopus is being constantly chased, chased by this shark. who's not a bad being. It's just that sharks eat. Nature. Arctic, you know, nature. it's it. That's the deal. And there's just a moment when they're underwater and he, he loses. The, he, he goes to find the octopus. It had gone away. It had been chased, as I remember. And then he's just there underwater and the, the creature comes to him and lies on his chest and he holds it like a baby Mm. and it's an octopus and my heart just just i couldn't believe what i was seeing because Mm. it was the perfect what t.s Eliot, the poet called objective correlative and what what he meant by that was that there are certain things that happen in life that stand for everything you just need that one vision sometimes to tell you mm. what Raghu just read, which is so, and, and the other stuff from Roshi and from Stephen Andre and all these amazingly conscious and kind and giving souls who want to teach us how to be happy, actually, in a way. That this little thing of seeing this octopus clinging to him, a human, a, a big human, was just overwhelming to me because it just said everything. It said what we've been talking about for the last hour or whatever, and Rago and I do not talk from a position where we try not to talk from a position where we know this and you don't know. We're all trying. And, um, you know, when I come across, on one level is the Mahasiddhas and the Gurus, which very few of us actually meet in in the, you did, others did, but you don't actually need that 
you need self-awareness. You need the trigger that gets you to do what was in that last piece you wrote, which is to, which is to make a, a really, really uh, clear distinction between aloneness and loneliness. Mm. Because what else are we going to do? I mean, you know, it, it, it's a way to progress is to see that uh, we are not alone, actually. And we have it all within us, you know. It's just, it's, it's all there. The inner life is all there for us. Yep. And it just needs triggering. Needs when, to be taught to us. Yeah. And we when need you, to know. You see this movie, you know, uh, what's it, My Octopus Teacher? I think yes, that's the name. Yes, that's the um, yeah. yeah, that's just, uh, uh, it opens up a whole door. In fact, you know who, who told us at a retreat that she was uh, teaching at with us in Maui with Ramdas a number of years ago? Roshi Halifax said, they have been doing experiments at John Hopkins or one of the big schools around mm. the level of intelligence of octopuses. Mm. Don't eat them. No, oh, yeah. I have <laughs> every. I was in a fish yeah. restaurant the other night, which mm. that's a whole other thing. Trying to get out of you know, fishitarianism, uh, and I see the octopus there, and I shudder, and then I think I'm doing the same thing. You know, I'm, you know, we we're all going through all this stuff. It's very difficult. Yes. Very you difficult. See the calamari there. Even the yeah. word is beautiful. It's like a lovely resort in Sicily yeah, right. or something. Yeah. Calamari. But then you think this is a being that that has just as much sophistication in <laughs> yeah, its environment right. as we do. More, in fact, no, more feeling because, and uh, <laughs> the whole it, thing. It's you know, so we're, we're alienated from our environment on the whole. You know, yeah. and. And, you know, when the, when the Russian cable guy came into my place yesterday, he didn't know too much about what he was doing for whatever reason because it was difficult. <laughs> he, was a, he was a really nice guy. And then he looked out of the window, and I have an amazing view here of the river. Yeah. And he just – and all, all of the dro – it all dropped from him. Oh. Instead of being the cable guy, he just looked at me and he said, what a view. What a view that is. Oh. I love that view. And I looked in his eyes and there was something there that was just not there five seconds before. Mm. It was just love for this nature, yeah. you know, that he, that he saw. And you're in common yes. totality. Yes, yes, yes. In that I moment. mean, yes. And, and, you know, we've got to have a sense of humor uh, about it. You know, we, we, our, our failings are our failings and we can come to make them, we can heal them, we can heal them, but... Yeah. Healing is, is um, it can't start with anything but this, that we are all one. The law of one, as, I, as people are calling it, the law of one. We don't have to know it's a law, but we have to know that that's the, the ultimate truth. It's the law of the cable guy, actually. It's the law of the cable guy. It actually is, <laughs> you know. that, you know, and, 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 you know, the reason people are upset in this country, I think, at this point, is that there's been a lot of, um, of of weirdness on all ends of the spectrum, <laughs> you know, people being cruel to other people. It's hard to imagine. I don't know anyone who's cruel to other people. Maybe they have cruel thoughts, but a lot of that is media. A lot of that is that other thing where they're making money from advertisements. Uh, our friend Danny told me the other day that MSNBC, the the progressive channel, loves to have Trump on there. They're the progressive channel. Why? Because their ratings shoot through yeah, the right, roof yeah, when this character comes on. Because no matter what we think about him, yeah. he's a magnetic guy. And people are yearning for that. So even the liberals watching this television channel that tells them that Trump is a nightmare, they need him 
to keep the viewers watching. Now, what does that say about our culture? What it says is we need the guy to have the octopus on his chest and we need Stephen. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. We need the guy Stephen that, and Andre. You know, we need them. Yeah, right. And, and we need Bruce that, Springsteen. We need people who actually say to us in the most lovely ways and the most magnet, the most, oh, what can you say? When Bruce sang that song, it's called Something of the Departed, Souls of the Departed, mm. isn't it? it? That's the only song I think I've ever listened to by anybody that made me cry. I'm not a mm. big crier. I'm, I'd love to cry. But, I, but when I heard Bruce singing that song, basically about veterans, I think, because he was so involved in, in that, mm. and you feel the heart of Springsteen within that song, I just realized, oh, my God, Souls of the Departed. There's a pop singer saying that. Instead of saying Moon June Croon, He's saying, let's pray for the souls of the departed. Something's right, if, the, if yeah. that can manifest in our no, culture. No, there is something right, and you are absolutely right uh, to take a nihilistic view that the people that are living in the separation bubbles are being fed by uh, many other people who believe they are in separation bubbles and there is nothing else, uh, is not true that 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 is uh, the majority, that is not the majority, and you see things all the time that show you people do care. So I'm going to end this show with a quote. <laughs> Since you quoted Bruce, I want yeah. to quote Jimi Hendrix. And so castles made of sand slip into the sea eventually. <laughs> yeah, right. right. The way he said that. He paused, yeah. right? He went, yeah. eventually. Eventually. Yeah. 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 We are all, you know, we are those individual bubbles, and that's okay, as long as we understand we are part of that vast ocean. And, uh, yeah, we're going to all return together. This is Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network. Thank you, David, so much for joining and my pleasure. Um, spending some time about some, I think, important subjects. and uh, I was going to say, Raleigh, one of the things, when we talk together, we do ramble around, but that's okay because it's stream of consciousness. <laughs> but we go well, from no, we were pretty good. We, we, we rambled. Good. No, I don't mean ramble disparagingly, really. I just mean that that's, it's the way I like to... I, it's the way I like to converse, shall we say? Yeah, it's what right. we do yeah. when we just yeah. talk. So that's, yeah, it's like that's, it's just like a phone call. It's the yeah, same, and, same and, and uh, not yeah. everybody needs to do that. But you know, that's another thing about His Holiness. So, and then you see him talk to people, and they ask him these abstruse questions. And he's always got these very simple, gentle yeah. answers. And yeah. he may be the wisest person on earth. Well, talk about Buddha of compassion. Yeah. So. Uh, Dave, so, we'll do this again. Uh, everybody, yep. whatever references that we've had in these uh, books, uh, the people who do the show notes will oh, have yeah. them up there. You'll have to let people know a couple of your sources as well. Just write a note, please. And uh, we who shall to, see you well, next okay. week. I, to uh, to yeah. you or to you? You can write to me. Oh, it's good. <laughs> Okay. I'll please make that up. I'll, I'll make that up. You're lonely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> See you later. Okay, Everybody. Bye.